Hey, this is Neil Mackay, your host of a Vietnam podcast. Now, before we get started on this episode, I wanted to share with you about one of my favorite affiliate partners, and that is Fiverr. I've been using Fiverr for years for everything from ordering YouTube thumbnails to keyword research, writing podcast articles, even to Canva designs and thumbnails and more. So whether you're a budding entrepreneur, a podcaster, or anyone in between, Fiverr has got you covered. It really is the go-to platform if you want to find freelancers offering a massive range of services to help you on any project. Maybe you need a stunning new logo or just a short animation, whatever you need, you can find it on Fiverr. What I love the most is how easy Fiverr makes it to connect with talented freelancers from around the world, all at prices that will fit whatever your budget is. Plus, with Fiverr's secure payment system, you can trust that your transactions are safe and secure. No dodgy people you meet on Facebook groups that disappear with your money and never give you what you want. What, that's only happened to me? As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you use the link and at no extra cost to you. As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you click my link and you buy something, all at no extra cost to you. And best of all, you will be directly supporting the making of this podcast that you're listening to for free, but it is not free to make. So why we head over to somewhere that you've probably never been before. It's called the show notes. So whatever app you're listening in, if it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anything at all, head to the show notes, click on my special link, and then you can browse thousands of gigs ready to help you with your next project. And now, let's dive into today's episode. Let's go. I just got here yesterday, you said? Wow. From where? Austin, Texas. Holy shit. AJ, we have someone from Austin, Texas here. My wife is up the back. She's from uh, Dallas. Oh, wow. Dallas slash El Paso. We have an Austin. We've been to Austin. We loved it. It was awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming. Thank you, everyone, for coming out. We've got a bit bit less people than we expected, but we're going to make it an amazing night anyway, so that's all right. Um, My name is Neil Mackay. For those of you who don't know me, which is 90% of the people here know who I am. So I host a podcast called 7 Million Bikes, and tonight is the first ever live version of 7 Million Bikes. And the topic for tonight is what can you joke about in comedy? Because we live in a very different era And there's lots of discussion these days, online and offline, about what you can and can't joke about in comedy. So thank you for coming out. Um, When I was researching this topic, I was thinking part of the appeal of comedy is the perception that you can say whatever you want about anyone or anything when you come on stage. 
And there's also, uh, the comedians are there to challenge the power structures around us. And to do that, you need to be able to say whatever you want. So comedy's always pushed boundaries. Um, I think this discussion that's happening now is not anything new. It goes all the way back to, like, Lenny Bruce, George Carlin, Bill Hicks, and then in the modern times, like, Jimmy Carr, uh, what's his name, Frankie Boyle. This discussion has always happened, and but as society has become more liberal, liberalised, um, comedians have been able to push the boundaries of what they can say. So what was funny 50 years ago is not funny now. Now, an example of this is in 1969, there was Spike Milligan, who's a very famous British comedian, came up with a new comedy show called Curry and Chips. He was a Pakistani immigrant who moved to the UK. His name was Kevin O'Grady. He adopted a, a white name. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is one of the lines in the first episode of Curry and Chips. Now, you can imagine the accent that he did. I'm not going to do it. But he said, I leave Pakistan because there are far too many wogs there. So I come to England and there are still too many wogs. And that was followed by massive canned laughter. That was on the BBC. That was mainstream comedy. And he was in full blackface. There are far too many wogs in this country. <laughs> I leave Pakistan because there are far too many wogs there. <laughs> so I come to England and there are still too many wogs. So we can all probably agree that that would never make it to television today. But in 1969, that was considered comedy. But even if you move forward, in 1987, there was the movie Raw by Eddie Murphy, if anyone's seen that, which is one of the highest-grossing comedy concept movies of all time. And one of his opening lines in Raw was, uh, a couple of years ago, I made a joke about homosexuals. Faggots got mad. And then went on to talk about homosexuals in a very derogatory term. Now, see, I did jokes about, you can, I did that jokes about homosexuals about a couple years ago, and faggots were mad. They were like, and they were, it's nothing like having a nation of fags looking for you. I'd be at parties, there's always two or three homosexuals at a party, and they'd be standing around looking at you, they'd be looking at So that was only 1987, family-friendly Eddie Murphy. You can never imagine that he would start, anyone would start a show with that line these days. I don't think they would get to the end of the set. So even though Eddie Murphy has admitted that that was a, a bit much, if you fast forward to The Nutty Professor, family-friendly comedy, basically the whole movie is him making fun of fat people. He's in a fat suit the entire movie. Um, should wearing a fat suit be seen the same as someone wearing blackface? Is that the same kind of offence? Is it okay to do that, to make a joke about it? And then we move forward. We have the post-Me Too movement, which obviously really took hold in 2017. Um, we've seen Louis C.K. and Aziz Ansari. Louis C.K. was exposed as to be a pretty disgusting person. Louis Aziz Ansari was kind of shamed a bit for maybe some questionable behaviour, but they faced a, whole, a massive backlash, and we've seen that whole comedy careers can be destroyed because of this. Recently, Louis C.K. made a, a comeback, and he was criticised uh, in some parts because his comeback was making fun of trans people, and survivors of the Parkland shooting. Now, that sounds terrible. I've heard the, the recording of his set, and if you listen, the audience are in stitches. The audience find it hilarious. You should address me. They're like royalty. They tell you what to call them. Fuck them. You should address me. 
as they them. Because I identify as gender neutral. Oh, okay. Okay. You should address me as there. Because I identify as a location. You're not interesting. Because you went to a high school where kids got shot? Why does that mean I have to listen to you? How does that make you interesting? You didn't get shot. You pushed some fat kid in the way. So who is somebody to then write an article or to say that it's not okay for him to joke about this when he's performing his art and he's making an audience of people laugh? These are the questions that we're going to talk about today. Part of the problem, um, and that's what we're going to discuss today, is because of this era post Me Too, this politically correct era that we live in, is it stifling comedians? Are they having to change what they talk about? So those two examples, Louis C.K. and Aziz Ansari, they were known as thought-provoking comedians that challenged the power structures around them using comedy. And now if you read about them, they've become what, I, what was described in one review as banal, boring. They don't want to challenge those kind of power structures anymore. They don't want to push the boundaries, and they're self-censoring themselves because they're scared of the backlash. So comedy has always been controversial. As I mentioned, if you go all the way back to Lenny Bruce, his whole life was, um, was ruined. He, he was dragged off stage by the FBI, if you ever look into Lenny Bruce, way back in, I think, the 50s it was. Um, so this argument is nothing new about what can you say in comedy. But now comedians have to be much more careful not to, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a long list, if he, long, long list, they have to be careful not to body shame, be racist, sexist, misogynistic, xenophobic, homophobic, or take aim at any other minority who may be offended by their jokes. So does that mean that this list I've just read out, does that mean that we can't talk about these topics anymore? Can comedians still make jokes about these topics? Or do comedians and comedy writers, do they need to evolve their art form? The last question we need to discuss, though, is are audiences just too sensitive these days? Are people too easily offended by what a comedian says? So today we're going to discuss this. We have a panel. I'm going to introduce my panel. Um, we have, first of all, up to the stage, he's a young Vietnamese comedian. He's just been featured in the New York Times, one of the biggest newspapers in the world. Um, he's a kind of a fresh face of new Vietnamese comedians who are absolutely hilarious. So we're going to welcome up to the stage. We Nguyen, give him a big round of applause. Thank you very much. Cheers. You can have a seat wherever you want. Next to the stage, uh, so is not a comedian. He's a writer. He's a journalist. He writes for Vietnam Oi. We're going to welcome up to the stage Jesus Lopez. Thank you very much. Thank you. And last of all, uh, she's a well-known scene on the Vietnam comedy scene. She's performed in Canada, America. She's performed in Bangkok. She's, uh, I think, a self-admitted controversial comedian at times. We're going to welcome up to the stage Angie the Diva. All right, so. Where's my notes gone? Thank you very much. <laughs> I was like, where has that gone? I'm going to move this out of the way. Now, we're also recording this tonight, so this is actually going to be an episode of 7 Million Bytes. So um, at the end of uh, our discussion, there's going to be an opportunity to ask questions. Please ask. 
Um, otherwise, then the show's over and we're all just going to go home. <laughs> all right, so um, there's an, a journalist in The Guardian called Stuart Jeffries, and this year he asked in an article whether it's censorship, problematic tweets, or hashtag MeToo, comics are being scrutinized like never before. Is there a new sense of panic in the industry? So we're going to ask Angie, do you think there is a new sense of panic in the comedy industry these days? Um, I think it depends on where you're from. I think we're getting some feedback here. Um, I think it depends on where you're from, where, where, or where you're performing, whether you feel that um, like self-censorship, that you, if you feel like you need to, you can't say certain things or you can't joke about certain topics. I think it really depends on where you are and the societal climate of where you are at the time. Um, and at, like, for example, as I travel around and do comedy in different countries, you obviously can't joke about the same things that you would here in Vietnam. Um, and you have to be careful about not offending the crowd just right off the bat. So um, it does depend on where you are, but I think performing in the U.S. or um, Canada even, in some places I'd imagine it's the same in the U.K., where society is kind of hypersensitive right now about the long list of things... Um, that you do have to be more careful, especially as a newbie going into that situation and you not really knowing uh, what you can and cannot say. Yeah, um, I, I know this is more your role than it is mine, Neil, but um, I'm curious from Wee's perspective is if that's a shared thing for Vietnamese audiences, that Vietnamese um, of uh, any age or uh, gender, male or female, do they ask that comics perform like uh, wokeness for them or that they be like socially conscious? Well, uh, so, you know, uh, I'm a Vietnamese uh, comedian, right? But most of the time I spend time to do stand-up in English, right? But you know what? Why I do that? Because I think that doing in English is much easier than doing in Vietnamese. First reason, I'm the foreigner to you guys. <laughs> is that right? And you may have empathy with what I say, with my English or something. And the second one, when in English crowd, I can joke about things that I cannot in Vietnamese. And in Vietnamese before, there's a Vietnamese comedian that's called Yu Lao, right? You may know him. It's, in English, it means cucumber. Right? So, so you know what is the problem he's dealing with, okay? So this comedian is a first standard comedian in Vietnam. He like, he's very good. But he liked to talk about politics in Vietnam. Right? After eight years doing comedy, right, what he have is a Facebook with one million people following, with a YouTube 500,000, but now stop right there because the police not allow him to continue the show. At the one time, I remember I was on that show and watching him. So the police come over, come inside. Even though he don't talk about anything about politics, but before on YouTube or the clip that he posts on YouTube that mentioned about politics. And so they come over and they check it out. Nothing wrong, but he said, no, that's it for today. Okay? And everybody go. And that's the last time I saw him performing. So I think in Vietnam, you will be judged more often than other countries. And there's certain things that Vietnamese will really, really afraid to hear and to talk about. 
And so we definitely know there's definitely things that we can and can't talk about in this country. And I, I think that definitely affects comedians in this country. Um, so I think some of these challenges that we're talking about, that, that we're going to talk about, we are talking about it from an almost Western standpoint. So um, how do you, Angie, adjust to um, performing comedy in Vietnam compared to performing overseas? Um, to be honest, I really don't adjust my comedy. Uh, I, I don't know if, I don't know, how, where are we on language today? <laughs> I have zero fucks to give. Like, <laughs> I don't care. When I was in Canada, at one of my shows, it was for uh, a queer community. It was a panel very much like this, and then there was the show afterwards. So... Um, a friend of mine, JK, he had recently told me just before I went, he was like, why don't you have any queer jokes? Um, you're like the only one in the community who could joke about that. And it kind of struck me as odd because um, I think what, what I interpreted to mean was like, you're queer, so you could make fun of queers. And I didn't feel comfortable with that because I wouldn't do that anyway, period. So it's not, I think comedy is very much about your own experiences um, and what you're comfortable with. Um, and I, I just wouldn't make jokes about things that I would find offensive, period. But that's my own, you know, my um, personal feelings about it. And that's what my comedy reflects. Now, I might not make uh, quote-unquote homophobic jokes, but I do say things about my kids that some people might find offensive. So... I don't really censor myself. I don't feel like I do. Um, it may be perceived as censorship from people who don't know about my comedy, but um, I, don't, I don't feel that I do, kind of. Well, I think one thing you mentioned there was, so because you're queer, then JK saying you should make jokes about queers. And I think that's a common thing is it, um, for someone who's like myself, a white male, and we have white male privilege, I think they, I don't want to say they have it the toughest, but they maybe get judged the harshest because of anything that they say about anyone or anything or any minority or any group who's not a white male, then you're automatically, then you're one of these isms. Um, Vietnam just scored yeah. a goal. Yeah! <laughs> Vietnam just scored. I completely lost my train of thought there. Um, but so I think that is a challenge in comedy. And um, Jesus, I wanted to ask you then. So what do you think? Can uh, a white man make a joke about black people? Can a straight person make a joke about queer people? And so on and so on. Do you think you can only make jokes about some, a group that you fit into? Your mileage may vary, is what I would say. Um, there, are, there are no restrictions on what you personally can say. I think that um, I, I, uh, I, I was thinking about the Trevor, Trevor Noah fiasco uh, earlier this morning in preparation for the show. Trevor Noah, before he became the Daily Show host, was a stupid guy on Twitter who would make fat people jokes, who would make like racist jokes, and um, things that people were curious about and wanted, wanted him to answer for as he attain this like level of prestige and I think that you know like 
we is like been recently featured in the New York Times, which is so great. But like the the number of people who can like shut him down are is still very small compared to like the celebrity that he could attain if he were to you know get like a Netflix special or something like that. So like, yeah, you, I, I'm sure you could as a as a white man make a joke about um, about some you know the minority of your choice get ejected from you know, the venue that that happened at and then, you know, move on to the next one. Um, if, if it's a small enough crowd and, and people forget about you, your, your jokes suck, then, like, the consequences might not be there for you. But, like, I don't know, man. Like, to me, a lot of that stuff is, like, these are just constraints. So, like, if I'm a white man and I can't make a joke about, like, Mexicans, then, hmm, what else can I think about, you know? If I'm, if I am a person of completely able body and can't make jokes about people in a wheelchair then hmm what else can i what else can i do what what other kind of material can i do um these are constraints and constraints i in my opinion drive creativity you can't talk about everything so you have to narrow down like what is important what is critical what's going to hit like you guys write jokes and you guys are very aware that like it's it it's up here like you guys are like having fun but there's like structure and process like i'm introducing the joke here i'm setting the scene here's the build up and here's the punch like it's very calculated so like it's not like these guys are just up here like just rattling shit off like you know whatever comes to mind so i think if we're willing to be that precise about how we write jokes then it's worth being a little bit more precise about the content of them too we had like to hear your opinion yeah my opinion on this, can we make joke about, I think that we need to narrow because every comedian will have one specific voice. We call it a fighting voice. I'm trying. I'm trying to find my voice. I try to do clean comedy, family, because I think that is not only useful for my foreign crowd, but for Vietnamese, because I have a long way to go in the Vietnamese community. Nowadays, I still doing open mic with Angie inside on funny people with foreign because I believe that they have a community that they can help me. In Vietnam, we don't have. So I have to stick to them, but my way is only go with Vietnamese people. So I have to go with a joke that not only work for Vietnamese, but also the foreigner. And that is often the, the joke about a topic that everybody accepted, right? So I'm going to move on to another question. So um, recently one comedian in the UK wanted to perform at a university as part of a university tour. And they were asked to sign a contract that said, by signing this contract, you're agreeing to our no tolerance policy with regards to racism, sexism, classism, ageism, ableism, homophobia, biphobia, transphobia, xenophobia, Islamophobia, or anti-religion, or anti-atheism. Nothing. <laughs> Just nothing. <laughs> okay, so I'm... Is there any room left for comedy there? No. <laughs> oh, like, genuinely, can you, can you still be funny? Like, you're a clean comedian then, so can, like, can you make fun... Can you still be funny without... Or Jesus, you want to add to this? Yeah, and I, I was just making sure that was a. I think this was this guy was like 
Russian or something, former USSR, and he yeah, said yeah, like, yeah. "Well, I remember reading something about this in the USSR, and this is what the government made us do." And rrr, like, yeah. I know what this is. So the context was, yeah, the comedian was Russian. He was performing in the UK, and when he read this, he it reminded him of like Russian government interference of basically like this is what you can and can't say, and couldn't believe that in the United Kingdom he was being asked to sign this contract. Yeah, this situation make me uh, remember once I joined in a show in uh, Vietnam uh, television. It's called Crack Them Up. Uh, it is huge, right? And it, 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 there's a lot of viewers. But before the show, they asked strictly rude. They asked us to sign in a contract before. It said that you, you're responsible for what you say. And there's something that you cannot say about. Example, the country, China... U.S. No. Dog. Using the word like dog to talk about people. No. Fart. No. <laughs> Tits. No. Okay. <laughs> what else? What else? What else? Uh, like, 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 fuck, of course. No. None of that. Even when you say mom, it means man. Mom. Just say, just swear, and then like, mom, in mom is motherfucking. <laughs> something, like <laughs> something like that, right? No, as on. So, you know, we have to use very, very nice words to talk to the people and to make fun of them. And finally, I come with, uh, you know, a family joke that really works for me. <laughs> Not for the... And from the reaction from the audience, from reaction from the audience, they don't laugh. The church sitting right there, they don't laugh too. I think it's not only, I think that as a comedian, I, even though it's not funny, but I have to follow that rule because it's stand-up comedy. It's not a mainstream of comedy in Vietnam. We're easy to be judged by the people when saying this word. For the traditional comedy, when they say it all the time, but nobody cares. But stand-up comedy, they often think about stand-up comedy in Vietnam. It's like trash talking. It's like politics. Right? So, but I, I think that, you know, as a comedian, we have to fix, we have to change your that situation, especially for this culture. And so, I would say the difference between this contract and, and what you're talking about is that contract was to be on television, which is obviously more mainstream and you, you're being beamed into homes. So, did you sign that contract? You were on the show, right? I do. <laughs> because I did join the show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I started, but luckily, luckily, I failed because I mentioned, I mentioned, I mentioned, I mentioned the word dog. That's why they don't put me on a television. And that's lucky. <laughs> that's lucky. If they put me on a television, that's going to be trouble for me. So what? Yep. Um, so when I read that part in the, in the article... I just thought all of these isms are so subjective. And what one person thinks is, say, uh, transphobic, um, for example. You have guys who dress up like women sloppily, not like drag queens, like they're, they're doing it in a, in a comedic way. And in, in this day and age, some people might view that as transphobic. But everybody might not see it as transphobic. And you yourself as the comedian or as the performer may not see it as transphobic. And then somebody after the show says, oh, that's transphobic and you shouldn't have done that. So these things are so subjective. It's hard to know how you are potentially offending 
one particular audience member. And though I agree that you shouldn't say, you know, things that are blatantly racist or blatantly transphobic or blatantly homophobic that, you know, pretty much society as a whole has agreed this is not okay. Um, I agree that you shouldn't do that. But there is always in, in the arts, there's always this gray area where you are pushing the boundaries, especially with comedy. And I think telling a comedian that you can't say A through Z really censors their art in such a way that, like we says, it's not funny. Like, now what do I say? Do I... I can, I can, I can talk about my dog, but not... If I call him a dog, and as long as he doesn't fart, like, what can you say? But, like, I don't think we've lost any valuable comics by telling men not to make fun of fat women. Like, I don't, I, I don't think that we've lost any, like, valuable comedic talent by telling white men not to use the N-word on stage or anything like that. And, I mean, like, you're, you're right. Like, a lot of this is subjective, but, like... Um, once upon a time, like, I did stand-up comedy. And if I were to tell a joke and a woman were to approach me afterward and say, like, hey, man, what you said was quite sexist and vile, like, I would just have to take that as a, a true judgment. It is very subjective, but um, it, the beauty of a system like that is that, like, you're being rated right there automatically. So, like, I think what people maybe uh, need to be less afraid of is just, like, being checked, you know? Oh, okay. <laughs> um, that concludes my remarks. <laughs> um, so to follow that on, Angie, you're presented with this contract. I'm not going to read it again. <laughs> would you sign that contract for a, perfor- a paid performing gig? Would you sign that contract? I mean, to be honest, it depends on how much money. Yeah, that's what I'm about to say. I mean, let's that's be real. <laughs> this is my yeah. job. This is my job. It depends. It it does depend on on how much it was. How you know what what it's for. What I, I would I definitely wouldn't sign something like that for open mic. Like absolutely not. Um, but if we're talking about uh, actually, I wouldn't sign something like that for my Netflix special either. Like if I was you know asked to do a Netflix special, I wouldn't sign something like that because this is being beamed to the world as a representation of me and my comedy. And I wouldn't want to be a part of something that is going to censor me so much. Now, if this is for a cruise ship, then, you know, let's get them coins and do what we got to (laughs) do. So it it depends on the the context of the situation. Um, I don't think that you can say, like, I'm I'm not going to quote-unquote sell out. Like, um, I think everybody has their boundaries and their lines and what, uh, like, to, to, you know, comment on what Jesus was saying, there's nothing inherently wrong with not saying these things. And even... If you're saying something that could be somewhat controversial, it definitely depends on how you deliver that joke um, and how your meaning comes across. So you have to be smart. Um, and you, I mean, it's like with any job, you got to follow the rules. 
So let's just make that clear. So you would sell out no. <laughs> <laughs> for the right price. I feel personally attacked. <laughs> um, no, but then are you saying, and I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you, that as comedians we sometimes have to censor ourselves? Yeah, we do. I mean, I... 90% of my comedy I could not do for a family-friendly audience. It's just, it's not a thing. I've done shows at Saigon Outcast for um, one of their festival things once. And it was, it was late night. It was probably like 10 p.m. or so. Um, they told everybody that this was going to happen, that it was an adult comedy show. And then you had little kids running around. And so I, ha- I stopped you know, the show, before it st- I stopped before it started, and, and I, I spoke to the crowd. I was like, look, this is an adult comedy show. There are going to be adult themes going on here. If you don't want your children to listen to this, then get them out of here now. And a few of them decided to stay. So now that's on you. That's not my bad parenting. That's yours. <laughs> um. Okay, so let's say, so we can, we can talk and we can joke about all these isms. Um, Jesus, what's the difference, in your opinion, between a racist joke and a joke about racism? You sent me these questions in advance, but like, <laughs> I still have to think about this. Yeah. Um, I'm going to... Buy some, uh, buy some time and pass this to Wee for a second. I'm going to pass to Angie as well. <laughs> I think the, the, the difference between a racist joke and a joke about racism is the intent and the punchline. How does the joke land? Um, I wish I could think of some famous comedian's joke. Uh, Chris Rock, for example, he often jokes about racism. They're not racist jokes. It's about racism. He's making a a social commentary on the state of racism in the United States. And he's making light of of, uh, the situation or, or he's shedding light on the problems in a comedic way, but it's definitely not like calling this group of people racist names um, or does that make sense um, versus I, I wouldn't follow any comedians who make racist jokes so <laughs> I don't know I don't have an example but versus someone who who gets up on the stage and they're they're dropping all of these racial slurs or they're saying things in a way that is just to have shock value and there's really no point to what you're saying. Um, I think comedy is very special in that we do have the opportunity to make social commentary in a funny way and so that people, when they're laughing and they're really engaged in the show, they have uh, a moment to really take that material in and think about it more deeply. Um, So I think that is an important aspect of it. But if you're just getting up on stage and you're saying these inflammatory things, what is the point? Um, I, so I don't have an answer to your question yet, Neil, but um, what I'm thinking of right now is 
just the very first um, days that I spent in a comedy workshop and with predominantly like a lot of white men. And there is, this was the first time I'd seen what I now know is just kind of a common process for like uh, white comics in Saigon is that they want to make a joke about Vietnam and Vietnamese, but they're struggling with like how to not make it racist. And um, it's, it's just an, an interesting thing to, because like, I feel like everyone spends some amount of time on it. Some, a lot of people, some, a lot of time, and then some like just a little bit and they end up like walking out on stage, like uh, making a joke that involves like imitating a Vietnamese accent. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I think that like, that's, Again, like I don't have an answer to that question specifically, but that's that's something that I wish that more um, local comics were sensitive to. That they, in their jokes about Vietnam and Vietnamese, they have a perspective that is informed by the Western society that they come from. And so, like whenever they make a harmless-sounding joke about traffic, when they make a less harmless-sounding joke about like women can't drive and they're covered head to toe, um, when they make a joke about um, sex work like there there is probably not a single fucking white man on stage this you know this year that has not made a sex work joke and that's something that you know like it's not racist but it's problematic in its own way because of race so yeah i i think that's just something that um in the most general terms, is worth being more conscious of. So I, th- I think that uh, in comedy, funny or die, right? You make a racist joke, you make the people in the audience, they laugh, you mean they accept with you, right? That is a comment on a racist joke, right? But if they get, you get booed by the people, right, and people think that you mean, I think that is a racist joke. And for me as a Vietnamese, I don't follow any comedian or hear the racist joke because that is not a typical thing happening in my country. Uh, but I can relate to my day job. That my day job is as a tour guide. Right? Uh, I go with a lot of tourists, especially from America. Sometimes we take them to Kuchita Tunnel and we talk about Vietnam War. So when you talk about this, about this war, people, especially American, they sensitive. They may think, that you will hate them because a lot of American men, they actually ask me, do Vietnamese still hate American, right? So when I say about that, example, when I say about this war, I often say that instead of saying American, I say the enemy. You know what I mean? I use another word for that. The way I convey the message is very different. But before that, I give them a warning. Everything I'm about to say is what I learned, and I say in the Vietnamese what I was educated, right? So if you have any argument or something, let's say it for the end, right? I think we need to give them a warning before we say this thing. That would be better. But remember one thing. It's not in every sense. Even if you give them a warning, doesn't mean that they will completely accept with you. So as a comedian, I think we have to accept one thing. That is the argument. No, um, that's, yes, exactly. (laughs) 
Well, what I was going to add to that is there's many comedians now uh, in the United Kingdom and in the US who actually give trigger warnings before a show. And I've done that on the podcast. We had uh, an interview with Sen Nguyen, who's a journalist who reports on sexual abuse in Vietnam. And I put a trigger warning at the beginning of the episode and in the notes that if you're going to listen to this, just be aware this is the topic that we're going to talk about. And so, as we're discussing, comedy is something that pushes the boundaries, that talks about all of these isms that once that can be offensive as part of the joke. Um, do you think that Jesus, the comedian, should give trigger warnings before the show to let people know this is what we're going to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that takes anything away from their from their work. But I mean, I also know that I also know other comics who um, she's not in the room with us right now, but um, she performed on this very stage. Boomin too will come on here and say some really racy shit. You've seen her stuff as well as I have, and a lot of it um, could—I don't—I don't, I don't know—could uh, fall under some sort of trigger warning and, and some sort of um, uh, some sort of precautionary note beforehand. But um, I don't know. I, I, the defense, I guess, would be that people know Vuman Two. People have seen a Vuman Two show, and they know what to expect whenever she gets on the stage. But um, yeah, I. I thought that was responsible whenever you put that on your podcast with Sen. Um, I don't think Vumintu would either object to or take issue with uh, doing something like that. I can't speak on her behalf. But, um, yeah, this is a, a completely separate point, but I also, it, um, it's worth mentioning, uh, at least for me, that, like, um, you sent us some material beforehand about um, comics on the idea of being censored and comic censorship um, who is it? The the guy, the the Patriot Act, the um, the Indian guy. I'm blanking on. Yeah, Hasan Minhaj. Okay, so he was he got in trouble for um, saying something about the Jamal Khashoggi killing of Saudi Arabia organized the killing of their of their journalist, um, one of their most prominent critics, and he um, he got a slap on the wrist by Netflix or something, but. I just I, I always want us to be careful that we're not conflating like his right to criticize the Saudi government with like the right to say the N word or something, you know? Like it's those are two very different creative uh, freedoms. Um, one is I think is far more important than the other. Well, to continue to go back and continue about trigger warnings, and I think that's a good example about Vuman too. And one of my questions was going to be, um, or one of my comments was going to be, do you, do you think that when somebody enters into a comedy show, they're entering into a space that they know by the history of stand-up comedy that there could be something offensive said? That, that do, do they need a trigger warning or is a trigger warning inherent in the fact that you're going into a comedy show? Like Instead of it being spelled out like, hey, there might be something you're offended by, you should just walk in thinking... I might be offended by something. Angie looks like she's something to say on this. <laughs> so I run um, a comedy show uh, once a month that we first build. It, it has a name, and then we build it. Like the, the subheading was Offensive Comedy Night. And the idea behind it was that you could say things on this stage that you might not think are appropriate for open mic 
um, or that may be a bit more racy than you would do at a normal show, um, not offensive in the way that people are going to get up there and shout the N-word or anything like that. But I kept running into audience members uh, or, or people who were interested in the show outside of it. And they're like, oh, I didn't come because I thought that I was going to be offended. Or I didn't come because I thought they were going to be standing up there and saying the N-word. So we had to change the tagline of the show to Raw Comedy Night, which I felt was completely asinine because it did not change the format of the show. It didn't change anything that anyone said, but semantics are very important to people. And that one change of word from offensive to raw somehow has assaged any um, feelings that people might have about coming to the show. I, I, I did another show in, uh, recently in Hoi An, And the first show was a regular comedy show. And then the second show was a, um, what did she call it? Adult comedy after dark or something like that. And 90% of the audience members in that second show were sitting with their mouths open and looking like, what the fuck did I just walk into the whole entire time? So... We can try to be careful, and we can try to give trigger warnings, and we can try to say this is what is going to happen. But, A, people don't read. Uh, And B, you still never know which thing is going to be offensive to which person. I have done most of my jokes all over the city and, you know, in different countries or whatever, and in the same place, sometimes they're very well received. And then sometimes one joke that killed at the last show, there were people there like, oh my God, I was so offended by what you said about your cats. And it's like, it's just a joke, man, calm down. So like, just to finish your point, like I think it doesn't take anything away from comedy or anything away from the comedian to say, here's a trigger warning. But that doesn't mean that people are still not going to be offended or that people are, are going to even read that there's a trigger warning. Yeah. I, I, think, I think that a trigger warning is a must. For me, it's a must. The first reason, maybe it can give you more confidence to really say what you want to say, right? Like the comedy, comedian, when they go on the stage, they say to people, hey, I'm new. Right. It is merely warning to people, hey, this is not going to go well. <laughs> don't, expect, don't expect too much. Okay? They give it naturally. That's a very natural thing. The second thing, you give a trigger warning to show that you understand the audience. The audience that you know, okay, today going with me is not only the foreigner, but also some Vietnamese in the audience as well. Right? And that is what very common, especially to the, you see the movie theater. 18 flood, 16 flood, they only give the trigger one in this thing. And I think they never get complained, even though, even though, even though they still get complained, but better than nothing. Okay. I like that, yeah. But, um, I, I'm hearing these conversations, and I, like, I think that, like, we always have to keep in mind that, like, I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and 
guess that the broad majority of people who could come to stand-up comedy shows in Saigon are novice-level comic uh, audiences. These are not people who are, like... I've heard the term comedy nerds used before. So these are not people who, like, follow the great tradition of, like, George Carlin or name your funny white guy. Um, these are not people probably who are super, super well-versed in the conversations that comics have about, like, trigger warnings and, and things like that. Um, these are people who probably know that Louis C.K. is hiding underground because he pleasured himself in front of a woman. Like, they definitely know that. But, like, the, the nuances of stuff like that are largely lost on people. And so as a... As kind of a newbie audience, I, I think that people tend to be accommodating because maybe they don't know the standards and they don't know, like, what exactly is, you know, the gold standard of, of acceptable conduct. Um, but, yeah, I mean, what's at stake here, I guess, is, like, if you are a Saigon comic with, like, a little bit of heat behind you, what's at stake here is a personal reputation where... Like, it's not about, like, you know, your contract getting pulled or, like, you know, you not being able to perform at a venue. Like, that's that's pretty far out of, out of the range. But, like, it's about people talking shit about you and repeating something that you said that they deemed, uh, they deemed offensive and unacceptable. So, like, that's, I, I think, something that, like, you're right, Angie. Like, that's something you can't, you have limited control over. But, like, that is just a risk that you bear as somebody with a spotlight on you. Just quickly to add to that. So do you think, Angie, that... I think that's a very valid point that I hadn't thought about. Do you think in Saigon... So we have about 100,000 expats here, and the majority of people that come to shows are expats, maybe 20 25% local Vietnamese. So do you think then, because you, in Saigon, you're not at risk of being pulled from a show, you're not at risk of losing a contract. It is a very new, up-and-coming amateur scene. But do you think then you're at risk of being judged by that community, which is quite small. Even though we're in a city of 10 million people, the expat community is only roughly 100,000. So do you think that's more of a um, like self-censoring factor on a comedian being worried about what people might say about you, what people might talk about you, rather than, oh, I'm going to lose this contract? To an extent, you do need to... I mean, as much as we all want to say, I don't care what other people say, you do. You're a part of a community. You're a part of, you know, the scene here. You do care to an extent uh, what people might say about you. As an artist, though, you have the sort of privilege to guide what people will say about you. Um, I, I know, and, and I'm pretty sure most of the comedians know, that when you get up on stage and you say something, those are your words. And you are responsible for those words. So don't get up there and say something that you would be ashamed of hearing later that you said. Um, so yes and no. Like, yes, you, think, you need to think about what people might say about you, but no, because it's your art and that's how you want to be represented. I know what people think about me, but I don't care. And, and, and you know, you're... you're Life on stage, you're, the way that you present your, yourself on stage is not necessarily the same person that you are in real life. Um, and if people want to judge you based on 10 or 15 minutes of what you say on the stage, 
then I really think that speaks more to their intelligence than, than to mine. So I'm going to move the goalpost or move the narrative a little bit. Um, I think we live in a very different world. I, I feel my age these days. I'm 37 years old. And I talk about this on the podcast often. When I grew up, there was a male and a female bathroom. Bisexual was just coming into the, the discussion. Me and Angie, we've talked about this. This weekend, I've just had Ricardo Glencasa, who's a drag queen in Saigon. We've had a massive discussion about the queer scene and the LGBTQ, or the alphabet scene, as Angie called it. Um, and I think an example of how that affects comedy, if, if you remember Ace Ventura, I can't remember if it was one or two, does anyone know? But at the end of that, that movie, they found... Number one, thank you. Uh, Ace Ventura one, Pet Detective. At uh, the end of that movie, one of the female characters uh, turned out to be a man. And when that was revealed, there was a room full of cops and they all threw up because they'd all hooked up with her. And the joke was, and that was what, the early 90s, the joke was that it was physically disgusting because they'd all made out with a man unwittingly. And again, that was funny back then. I think everybody laughed. I laughed, you know. It was a joke. But now we're in a modern era, and we realize that that's not funny. That, there's people that like to dress up as a woman, or those people who are transgender. Um, so how do you think, then, that comedy and comedians have to evolve, knowing that we're in a different era to what has gone before us? Uh, we? Uh, you mentioned about uh, a female. It's, it's maybe we remember the female... Uh, some there's in uh, Vietnam comedy scene, there's a lot of male actor. They want to do impersonating the female character, right? They dressing like girl, makeup like girls, and go on the stage and do acting and comedy, right? At the beginning, so many people get famous for that. So many I I kind of mentioned it because you don't know them. Right? And they really get big famous. But after that, there's so many other comedians also follow them to do dressing like girl. And it's, 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 not, it's, not, you know, it's not because they're dressing for their, their, their comedy set, but they're dressing because they think it's funny. That's what I mean. They're dressing just because they think that is funny. And the audience at the beginning, they love to see that. Oh, they think it's funny. Okay, cool. Girls, man, dressing. But after that, they get tired with this subject, right? Because all of the ideas the comedian before re- present all of that. The comedian go after, there's nothing new, right? So I think that when you, you know, play character, we need to change because the time changed by day. The joke yesterday funny, but the joke today is not funny. And do in the comedy in IndyCar, open mind, you know that the same crowd, but last week it's funny, but this week, same people, it's not funny. I can't explain why, but there's a big difference in here, right? So as a comedian, I think we need to adapt to stay funny. Um, I was just listening to you talk about that Ace Ventura scene. Like, that just sounds like a, some shit that a bunch of, like, white men in a room, like, came Which up with together. Which you probably was. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, exactly what Neil, it was. I'm sorry, but, like, that's fine that we can't write that scene anymore. I'm, I don't think we've lost anything because we can't have that, I don't think that we are. <laughs> I don't think that we are denied any like creative genius because someone can't write that shit anymore. That just sounds really like terrible, and I'm glad we're done with it. But 
Yeah, I don't know. Like, um, in, in like, the, the meta picture of, like, Louis C.K.'s, like, underground, like, we might not hear from him. Like, we might be missing out some good humor and stuff like that. Aziz Ansari, uh, name your, name your uh, male comic who's uh, gone into hiding. But, like, th- there are plenty of talented people who have yet to break onto the main stage that maybe there's a space for them now that um, we found out that Louis C.K. is licentious with his male fan, <laughs> with his female fans. So, like, yeah, I, I think that, to me, like, whenever I was reading that material that you, um, that you sent us with, um, on the subject of, like, comics and, and restraint and stuff like that, I, I, like, a lot of that seems written very pro in the, in the camp of the establishment and the people who are currently successful. So, like, if these people can't be successful, then, like, guess what, man? Like, that's Darwin. Like, they're going to die off like dinosaurs. So, like, after we're done fossilizing them, maybe the new talent can come and bring up the guard. And I think, and you can, we can talk about this. Do you think that's changing? Because I think that's a great point. Writers' rooms were notorious for being white male, whether that was Saturday Night Live, sitcoms, movies. It was a bunch of white guys writing from a white guy experience. I mean, there's so many movies. Like, what is the movie Revenge of the Nerds when they all, like, spy on the the girls that are naked and there's American Pie where they're watching the woman on the webcam naked. Well, now you would watch that and you'd be like, no, no, you guys need to be in jail. Like, you're literally, like, (laughs) abusing this poor Bulgarian refugee on a refugee, like exchange students so do you, but do you think all those movies and now you've mentioned it probably just came from a bunch of white guys in a room uh, Angie probably <laughs> probably absolutely and that's changing though right we have more trans writers more minority just all minorities are now making it into writers rooms right right um, see the thing is society has an idea of what is deemed acceptable for a while, until somebody says, I don't like that, and then they get together with some other people and they say, I don't like that either, and then they start speaking out about it and say, you know what, that's really problematic. Like, the Ace Ventura thing is problematic on so many levels. Um, And I do watch movies now. Like, one of my favorite movies of all time is Coming to America, and I watched it the other day, and I was like, whoa, this is really problematic. Like, but... I think you have to separate and have a bit of empathy on some levels, on some levels, as to what was socially acceptable, what was um, allowed to be on TV. I'm sure back then there were people who were saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to dress up in women's clothes and make a fool of myself. Um, but you have these executives at an office who say, no, that's funny to me. That's what I'm going to put my money behind. This is what you can produce or you can't produce at all. So we have to have, I think, a bit of compassion and empathy for some, some, big some things in the past that have happened. But also moving forward, we have to be more sensitive and aware of these images that we put out. And I guess from the lens of comedy, like I said earlier, I don't joke about things that I would find offensive myself. And if somebody, like Jesus was saying, if if somebody comes up to you after the show and they say, oh, that I found that very offensive, um, then you have an opportunity to judge yourself whether 
you really think it is offensive and, you know, you could workshop it with your friends or whatever, people that you know, um, or that if it, it just is factually offensive and you need to check yourself. Jesus, can you be offensive and funny? Definitely, yeah. Um, I think that um, to, for the sixth or seventh time uh, reference your name tonight, Boomin' too is a perfect example of that. Um, there is a, there is like a, a style of comedy that she's perfected that is very like in your face and like does not fucking care about you and is like very like her and is um, just a joy to watch. And I think that, um, like it, it's a, it's offensive in I guess like a particular way. Um, it doesn't seem to target anyone, but it seems to. It, it definitely has like an opinion, and it has strong judgments about just different things happening in the world. Um, but yeah, I think that she is good because she's able to like tactfully deliver that, and so like that I think will be part of the challenge of comics moving forward. Is like, well, yes, I can be offensive, and yes, I can be funny too. But like, how precisely do I do this with like? you know, my particular identity, my particular life experiences and my particular, um, my particular story. And like, that's pretty much like the, the challenge of comedy itself of joke writing. That's just another feature of it. Same question to we, can you be offensive and funny? Oh, I think the nature of joke, when writing a joke, uh, I, I think there's only two character, the victim need to have a victim, right? So the victim would be the one who offensive, But for my style, I often pick myself as a victim, right? Yeah. So all of my stuff, okay, I will play the victim character. So I will be offensive maybe to me, but uh, to the people, I really, sometimes, I do sometimes, because, you know, as a comedian, you know, when you practice, you have to do many, many uh, characters, right? And, but all of that, you know, when I do it, whenever I do another character to offensive audience, I fail. And I bomb really, really bad, right? But when I humiliate myself, I think that's my voice. So I just pick me as a victim. And just sort of if I continue on from that point. So I was talking to Atis, who's the manager here, when we were setting up this event. I met with him on Saturday, and we talked about this exact same thing. And he, he was saying to me, where is he? He's up the back. He's hiding there. He held his name, and he popped up. <laughs> hey, there he's there, Atis. So uh, we, were, we were talking about how um, all comedy involves suffering, right? And exactly what you said there, somebody has to suffer, and that's either someone else or yourself. And often for my comedy, it's the same. I, I'm the person who suffers as the Scotsman that no one can, can understand. And so a lot of comedy has to be self-deprecating. Now, if you look uh, into a British comedian called Hannah Gadsby, and she's a lesbian comedian... And recently she's come out on tour saying that she's no longer going to be self-deprecating. She's like, I built a career on making fun of myself for being a lesbian. I talk about situations that happen to me and I, I make light of them and I make joke of them, but I'm not doing that anymore. She talks about being sexually assaulted, about being spoken to negatively, and she makes a joke of it because she's a comedian. And she's now changed and she said, this year I'm not doing that anymore. And so... Yeah, it just ties into what we're saying. You know, but now comedians are starting to say, I'm not even going to make myself the person who suffers. 
So if if all comedy, like a T says, has to involve somebody suffering, and you're not going to make it yourself, and you don't want to offend someone else, how, then how does where does comedy go from here, Angie? I'm just thinking of my own jokes and thinking of like who is the victim, um, baby Jesus, <laughs> sweet baby Jesus. Um, I think I need to think about that. So I'm going to let somebody else talk. <laughs> well, we, could, we have two options. We can take a break if we want and then continue on. Or do you want to stop? Hands up to take a break. Vietnam, Thailand. Come on. <laughs> All right. We'll just take like, just like three minute break. Have a cigarette. Have a, a pee break. Refill your drink. I've got lots more questions to ask. But we will, we'll have a few more questions after the break. And then we'll... Take some questions from the audience and then we'll, we'll be finished. Does that sound good? Yeah. All right. Thanks for taking a break with us, guys. We'll get restarting. So we're going we're gonna to just uh, continue with that question that I said was, um, if, if comedy is suffering and someone has to suffer, either yourself or someone else, but we're in an era where we don't want someone to suffer... Where does comedy go from here? Someone's always suffering, period. Um, there are universal truths, I think, um, and comedy is a lot about spinning a topic that everybody knows about into a way that is funny. No one wants to listen to anyone talk for five or 30 minutes about how great their life is. That's not funny. So I think the, the line is drawn between what is a universal truth among most people and what is pointing the finger at somebody. And often I think offensive comedy or, or comedians who are offensive are pointing the finger at somebody that they don't truly understand. Um, I was just talking to Caleb about this outside, and he said, um, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> he said, um, "He said you can't poke fun at somebody that you don't have love for. So if if you are coming from a place of hate about a group of people, yeah, you're gonna find your audience who thinks that's funny, um, especially in a, in a small situation. Uh, but that is still offensive. Like it's still problematic. It's still wrong. Um, like for example." I'm sure that someone is making jokes at a Trump rally about these problematic topics and people are laughing because that is that group of people. But it's still problematic. Um, so you have, to, you have to have love for the people that you're making fun of. Um, but you, it also has to come from a place of, of understanding of that group and, and poking fun in a way that is not trying to hurt them but just shedding light on something that we probably have already noticed anyway. I, I think that offending people in one situation will get support from people. It's with the heckler. <laughs> with the heckler. And I used to do a show, and it's show is in Vietnamese. And the man's in the back, well, he's like, you know, most heckler is drunk. <laughs> Right, oh, and, and he's okay. talking along, along, and along, and he's making noise during the time. Right, the people was you know distracted by him. Right, at the first, you know, the the host tell him to 
you know, can you quiet a little bit? But he kept talking, he thought he was like, he talking to me, because at the time I just a beginner, right? And he talking to me, he said, hey, can you make it funnier? It's only joking, it's funnier, right? His, he drunk already, right? So very quickly at that time, I remember that on, 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 on the wall, there is a warning. It said, no animal <laughs> inside the room. So I just pointed, so how can you get inside here? <laughs> and I think, I think I really hurt him because <laughs> I feel hurt when I say that too. <laughs> but I think that I, I guess a fault from the people right? and the people just laugh and, and I don't feel regret when they do that. <laughs> so I'm going to change tact a little bit. We'll move the subject on. Um, in this kind of modern age that we live in, post Me Too, um, comedians have always been seen as pushing barriers, pushing boundaries, and, and pushing social structures. And not only just for fun, but they can also be leaders in that, that kind of movement. And recently, some comedians, when they tour in the UK, they will only have gender-neutral bathrooms. So they will ch- tell the venue, you can't have a male and female bathroom. You need to have gender-neutral bathrooms. And then, but then it takes uh, another turn because then it becomes, um, you mentioned earlier, semantics. And some people can be offended when a comedian comes on stage and they say, ladies and gentlemen, tonight. And someone says, well, I'm not a lady. I'm not a gentleman. So some comedians are having to change the way that they introduce to an audience. I, I don't know all the labels that you could get through if you were to introduce a comedian, and then there's another comedian, and she talks about how uh, she has to maybe change her jokes because instead of saying a male, what was it you told me in the, when we did our podcast? How do you, how do you identify yourself as a, a, a straight male these days? A cisgendered. Uh, I don't know how to identify a straight male. Um, <laughs> um, like for myself, I identify as a biological female who is pansexual, which means that I am attracted to confidence and I don't care what you have between your legs. Um, but there are a ton of labels. I think one of the articles that you sent us, it, it, it can take away from the joke if you're having to list all of these things or, or identify a, a person um, based on what is socially acceptable at the time. So the article was saying that if, if it's part of the setup, then maybe you can do it and it's going to be okay. But if it's the punchline, you got to just say that word. It's just man. Um, and I, again, I think it's about intent. It's about... Uh, you know, if if one person in the audience is going to be offended by you saying ladies and gentlemen and taking out of context that that's the way that you've addressed people forever since the dawn of time and not just now we're using this different language, um, not to say that that different language is not important, but show a little grace to the comedian and you can you can mention that and you can tell them that and they can change. Um, you know, the intro is not that that difficult to say Good, good evening people or good evening humans. But I've been in a situation before where I did that and then somebody was like, I'm not human. And I just was like, <laughs> well, fuck. Uh, I don't know where to go from here. Um, again, I think it, it depends largely on the society that you're playing to. 
um, what is socially acceptable and what is socially necessary for you to get your point across. If you're, if you know that you're going into a community where where vocabulary like that is very important and you get up on the stage and you say, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to close off most of your audience right there. And they're not going to be able to listen to what the rest of what you're trying to say. So you have to be sensitive to the people that you're playing to. Um, like on the other hand, I was, we were talking about this outside in places like Malaysia or Singapore, where most of the comedians' jokes are very racially charged, they're always talking about Chinese people are like this, and Malaysians are like this, and Indians are like this. That is socially acceptable in their culture. And when you see them on the street, they talk to each other like that. So even though in that setting, I felt a little cringy, I felt like do we need to talk about race the whole entire time? I had to be compassionate and empathetic to their situation that this is where they're coming from and this is their culture and who am I to come in as an outsider and tell them that they shouldn't talk like that? Um, It's about where you're playing. No, I I think that like, um, I I just feel that... um, within the the subject of like race based commentary uh in a comedy setting um that's just something that i i wish people would spend more time with before they pen that joke about like oh asian women like can't drive like that there there is something happening there that is like way more dense and like than the the writer thinks like you have you are exercising a judgment based on like uh, the sexism thing that that you're really attached to. You're exercising a judgment based on uh, perhaps like a racist thing that you're attached to. Um, that interaction is is very dense and and like um, you know we're talking about like um, people being offended at being addressed as an audience as like ladies and gentlemen and stuff like that. And I think in in most settings, at least like in this city, like. No one's really going to like hurl a drink at you if you say "ladies and gentlemen" as as an opening statement. But like, um, so like, there's not like an authority or anything like that. There's not like police coming to cuff you if you don't follow the rules, as it were. But like, what I guess is um, is is at risk. It's just like you. Somebody might talk to you. Somebody might want to say something to you. Somebody might want to explore your um explore your differing opinion in greater detail and so like that's i feel like what deserves more attention like just discussion and argumentation like that feels like something that deserves more of our time and focus than like should comedians be able to say the word dick on stage like mm, that's not as interesting as like can we talk about that in a really fair and meaningful way that like that really like introduces people who have differing viewpoints on it. Do, do you ever feel, uh, do you ever see anybody come to tell you that they feel offensive when you say ladies and gentlemen? For me, no. I use that every day, right? And even in the presentation, anywhere. But I, th- I think that the, the people who feel offensive of that is not a majority people. Uh, so I think that we need to come back to the point from Angie. We need to know who is the audience 
and where we perform. If you are in LGBT party and you said, ladies and gentlemen, that is not proper. But I think as, as a comedian, we have enough level to aware of these things because I think it's simple, right? So to tie into two things, so you, Angie, you talked about semantics. Oh, you talked about owning what you say on stage. And then Jesus, you've just said about, you know, maybe having that conversation. You, you have to be prepared, I guess, for what you say on stage. You, you do have a sense of freedom up here. There's a bright light on you. Generally, you can, I can see all your faces today, but generally we can't see your faces. So there is that sense of freedom of we can get up here and we can say whatever we want. But then when you break that barrier and you walk off stage, and so I, I've not had it happen to me, I don't think, but then someone comes up to you and says, well, I don't like what you said about your children. And then you're breaking that fourth wall. So in terms of owning what you say on stage, but also being prepared to continue that conversation off of stage, does that mean that comedians then have to be more careful with what they say up here because it isn't a bubble up here? What you say has meaning, has effect. So I don't know, is that censorship or we just need to be more cognizant of our surroundings? I want to hear from we on this one. Uh, can you make a question a little bit more simple? <laughs> I just did my number one rule don't ask five questions in one question which I just did um, do you have to be even more careful of what you say on stage well of course of course we need to be, be careful of what we say on the stage um, especially example if I tell a joke in here with you you may laugh but if in this situation there's somebody in the back this happened on my van because some people they have a recorder or the phone, right? And this not happened in a comedy show, but in On My Day Tour, they have a recorder and they record everything that I say, right? And you know, when talking on my tour, talk about war, talk about politics. And of course, what if they use these and post on Facebook or something or video and the people who see that video will have a different perspective with the people in here. So come back with a trigger warning. I already give a trigger warning to the people on the van, but not for the people who watch on Facebook. So they may have a very, very different thinking. And they're not on the situation. They may un misunderstand the message, right? So I think we should be really, really careful with what we say on stage. But we're also really careful with the people off stage and see on their hands what they're holding in their hand. Well, one of my questions was going to be, has social media and the backlash from social media, has that stifled comedy, Jesus? Um, no, I mean, in my understanding, it's just eliminated a lot of the bad actors who maybe needed to go away. But do you guys have differing opinions on that? Um, I, think, I think it does in, in some ways. Um, like for example, or just generally, these things that they're like digging up your old tweets from like 10 years ago, or they're, you know, your college pictures from 20 years ago, or something that happened a very long time ago. And it may, yes, may, it may have been problematic and it, it may have been offensive to a certain group of people, but it was 20 years ago. And I don't know about anybody else in this room, but I am not the same person that I was 20 years ago. I've read more, I've met more people, I've traveled more, I have had a ton of different experiences. And to hold me accountable to the point that it's going to kill my career, um, 
I, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, you know, you said these things however long ago. How do you feel about that now? Um, have, has your viewpoints changed? Let's look at your track record over the last 10 years. Are you still doing those problematic things? That's one thing that I think is acceptable. But to say you did something 20 years ago, that's problematic now, today, um, and now you have no more career, I think that's not cool. Like, it's, it's not okay. Um, and, I mean, just like... You have to own what you say, you do, and you do have to be prepared for those conversations afterwards. But I think there also needs to be room to grow um, for celebrities in general. It's not just comedians, but people in general whose lives are lived on camera. And, you know, like myself and you on a much smaller scale here in Saigon, but people do see us out and they, they see us say things or do things on stage. And then, for example, somebody came up to me after a comedy show and he was like, so how does it feel to be known as the worst mom in Saigon? And I just was like, dude, are you serious right now? Like, what, what, these are just jokes, man. Like, it's just, it's, it's just a performance. And um, you have to take what people say sometimes with a grain of salt. Like, I know that I'm not a horrible mom, and I, I know what I do in my day-to-day, and I feel that that's a very narrow-minded perspective for some for some stranger to come up to you who's listened to you for five minutes say that. Um, so I wasn't offended by what he said, but you, I am accountable, and I did have that conversation with him, and I explained to him, you know, the ins and outs of the whole situation. But, um, yeah, I mean... Ten years from now, if somebody comes up to me and says, you know, you're a horrible mom, I hopefully I can have that conversation. But on the other hand, you have to have some uh, strength in who you are as a person and not take everything that everyone says offensively. And talking about things that have happened a long time ago and then you get held accountable for today, I do think it's unfair. I do think it's very unfair. And I've admitted on my podcast and with friends, I, I used to be homophobic. I'm not anymore. If I, I, thankfully, I didn't post anything online. I don't know if someone could find a text from me, maybe. But I would hate to think that I would be judged in 2019 at 37 years old on something I thought when I was 19 and I was a, a stupid kid. And recently, an example of that is Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister. Photos have surfaced of him in blackface in university. I think he was dressed as Aladdin. Absolutely terrible. Of course it is. Nearly ruined his career. Not yet. Um, But we recognize today that blackface is wrong. Like, we were talking about Asian face. I don't know if anyone remembers, like, Mickey Rooney in uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's when he played an an Asian man. Or even in Short Circuit, I don't know the name of the, the actor, played the Indian character in the movie, and he was not Indian at all. So my question to the audience is, uh, sorry, not to the audience, to the panel. We, we understand that blackface, Asian face is completely wrong. We would never do it today. What are your thoughts on fat shaming and fat suits? Because has that gone away? Because as I mentioned in my introduction, I mean, Nutty Professor wasn't, was quite a while ago, but I'm still not sure that um, we've still got the same opinion on, on fat shaming. Jesus? Um, I think it, people find it generally very acceptable to make fun of fat people still. Do you find it? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that um, that's something that 
people still find um, accessible to them as comics. Um, but yeah, I, thinking about the Nutty Professor, like that does seem like a long time ago. But that um, I, I don't think that the world has really moved on significantly from then. Um, you know, as as we're talking about like this specific issue itself. Um, I'm thinking about a friend of mine uh, who uh, she is um, like a, a doctor. Uh, her doctor in particular told her that she is overweight, and she finds tremendous power in referring to herself as a, a fat person. And so, like, that's just like one of those things where it's like, would it be okay for someone else to call her fat? Like, definitely not. But like for her to use the word fat on, on her own terms and for herself and in a way that feels empowering to her is, is just a different thing. So, like, could she, you know, do a stand-up routine on that? Like, maybe. Maybe she might kill. But, like, is, is that the same thing as, like, Eddie Murphy putting on a fat suit? Like, eh, not quite. Not really. So, um, I have a question for each of you. And this is a yes or no answer. You can only answer yes or no. Okay. <laughs> we, I'm going to start with you. Can rape be funny? Yes. Jesus? No. Angie? Yes. All right. So we got two uh, yes. Yeah, no. So um, George Carlin, he famously argued that no subject is taboo. And to demonstrate this, that rape can be funny, he used an absurd scenario. He said, think about Porky Pig raping Elmer Fudd. All right, now a few people have just laughed at that. So the argument would be then that rape can be funny, but Jesus, why do you say no? I feel like it's fairly obvious because there's nothing to me that seems funny about sexual assault. But um, yeah, uh, George Carlin probably made those comments at a time where it was probably acceptable to make a joke or two about that particular subject. Um, I also don't find, like, Porky Pig uh, isn't uh, a, a chuckle getter for me specifically, so. And I'm sorry to say that was the end of the recording. I have no idea what has gone wrong, but when I went to edit the podcast and make this, the recording just stopped. There's no extra files spoken with Lewis who's been amazing as always and helped me set up the sound for the live show so thank you to Lewis for that um, and we that there's no other solution so I'm sorry if that's unsatisfying it's unsatisfying for me we maybe had about another 10-15 minutes left um, some more thought-provoking questions we had some questions from the audience at the end that were really great as well so thank you to everybody who came if you are unsatisfied by not hearing the end then it means you need to come out to the show next time we're going to do more of these next year so um, look out for them and if you can come along it was a really great event and um, some really thought-provoking answers insightful contributions from all of our guests so thank you so much to Ween Win, Jesus Lopez and Angie the Diva for contributing and coming along and thank you to everyone who attended the event and thank you to everyone who's listened to this podcast and listened this far and this is the last episode of season two so we'll be back again in a few months. Massive, massive thank you to everyone who's listened to even a minute of the podcast. People who've sent messages, um, who've given feedback, left reviews, 
got involved, given any type of support. Um, this has just been amazing. And um, so look out for more episodes in the future. Look out for more live events. And um, thank you again for listening. It, it really does. Um, it's really amazing to see and to hear back from everyone. So if you want to listen to more episodes, you can go to 7millionbikes.com. You can get the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, all the usual places you can find it. So you can go back and listen to old episodes. There are so many now. You've got about 11 episodes in Season 1, 10 in Season 2, and then now the live show as well to finish it all off. So any feedback, you can leave a review on Facebook, get in touch by email, whatever you want to do. It's always good to hear from people. And uh, once again, thank you so much for listening. Have a great day. hope you enjoyed this episode if you're like me you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public wi-fi this opens you up to digital snoopers it's a massive problem it can be your internet service provider or you know who looking at what you do online or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data these days it is vital that you keep your data safe NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely, even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease. And I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. Just again, for those hard of hearing, nordvpn.com forward slash SMB. The link is also in the show notes. I know nobody checks them out, but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast. As an affiliate partner, it also means that I will get a small commission when you sign up, but at no extra cost to you. So not only will you be getting a great deal through 7 Million Bikes, you get a great VPN and you'll be supporting 7 Million Bikes podcast. Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers.